In the spirit of that prayer that we've just been singing, shall we consider together the words that are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 7, and reading from verse 8 to verse 13. Verses 8 to 13 in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring or muttering among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. We continue our study of this early portion of this seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John because it is, as we have been seeing Sunday by Sunday, an exposition of this terrible condition which is known as unbelief. It puts it before us in a very striking and in a very dramatic form. We've been looking at it hitherto, especially as uh, it is uh, revealed in the attitude towards our Lord of his own brethren. The first seven verses are particularly uh, concerned with them. But as I say, it uh, presents us with a more general picture. Indeed, this is, of course, what we find in the whole of the four Gospels. That is undoubtedly why they were written. They were written in order that we might find instruction from them. And therefore, what the Gospels really present us with is this. Pictures, portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ on the one hand, and on the other, the reaction of men and women to him. Now, we should thank God for this, that we have these records. Not merely because they do give us these wonderful pictures of him, but because at the same time they do give us this other picture, the reaction of men and women to him. And of course, historically, throughout the long story of the Christian church, men and women have found salvation many and many a time through suddenly seeing themselves in this picture of unbelief with which we are presented in the Gospels. If we had merely the positive doctrine concerning our Lord, we might have had that. We might have had it as if it had been just a textbook of theology, telling us who he was, describing his person, giving us an insight into his work and all his purpose in coming into this world. It might have been presented to us like that, and that would be very valuable and very profitable. But the special glory of the Gospels is that they enable us to see him as he was when he was in this world. They give us these touches, these pictures of him. They bring us, as it were, more directly into contact with him than would a mere bald declaration of the truth concerning him. And in addition, 
as I'm repeating and emphasizing, they allow us to see men and women reacting to him so that we are not left to our imaginations only. We see the impact that he had upon people and their extraordinary response to him. The Gospels, in other words, are the records of a great tragedy in the main. They are the record of how the Son of God came into this world. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, here in this chapter, all this is put before us in a very dramatic and intense form. And that is why we are considering it together. Of course, our ultimate objective is this. There is nothing more important in this world, in this life, than our reaction to this blessed person. The one important question in life for every one of us is, what think ye of Christ? Why is it important? Well, it is important for every reason. It is important immediately because of the difference it makes to our life even while we are in this world. It transforms life. It makes of it something which becomes glorious. It solves the major problems of our life and existence in this world. When we come to death, when we come to die as we'll all have to, well then, of course, it's the only thing that matters. Your knowledge of politics won't help you then. Your knowledge of science will be of no value to you. Your knowledge of the great literature of the world, your knowledge of the best music, will be of no value to you. You'll be leaving all that behind. You'll be facing a great unknown, as it will appear at first. But then, into that unknown you will find you will be facing God and his demands. Oh, when it comes to a matter of dying, there is nothing which is of importance save this. And indeed we know that the whole of our eternal destiny and future hangs upon our knowledge of him and our relationship to him. Nothing but this matters. He has told us himself that at that great day what will matter will be our knowledge and our understanding of the word that he has spoken to us. Very well, my friends. That's why I'm calling your attention to this. Nothing is so important as just this. What think ye of Christ? Well, now here we are being helped, you see. We've seen the reaction of his brothers to him and we've listened to our Lord's words in reply to them. He's told them quite plainly. He says, you know, the trouble with you is you don't know me. You don't understand me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm doing in this world. You don't know anything about the great plan or purpose which has brought me and sent me into the world. You're ignorant of me. And then he went on in verse 7 to say that they were ignorant of themselves also. He says, you're ignorant not only of me, but of the state of mankind in sin. The world cannot hate you, but me it 
hates. They didn't understand it, and he's been opening their eyes to it. Well, now then, very well, the picture continues. And I want to hold before you this evening this further step, this further stage. It's the same essential picture, but it gives us yet a further insight. It takes us further along the road to the understanding of this. Very well. The matter divides itself up, it seems to me, very simply in this way. First of all, in verses 8 to 10, we've got another picture of him. And then in those other verses 11 to 13, we are given a picture once more of other reactions to him. Not the reactions of his brothers now, but the reactions of certain other people when he had arrived up in Jerusalem. Now these are the two things I say that matter. Let's have another look at him. There are many ways whereby a man arrives at the knowledge of the truth. Some people arrive thus positively and directly by looking at him, and in the sight of what they see in him, they see themselves. Others arrive in this way. They start by seeing themselves, and in their desperation they then look for him, and then they find him and they see him. Well, here both are put before us. Thank God for it. Now then, let us start again with him. Listen. This is what he said, Go ye up unto the feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Let us, I say, look at him. Look at this blessed person. Consider for a moment his loneliness. There has never been such a lonely person in this world as the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you see him alone in this picture? His brothers go up, go up, he says, and they went and they left him alone there in Galilee. And it's just a typical illustration, example of this loneliness of the Son of God when he was in this world. What are the elements in this loneliness? Well, I think there are, there are several, and several of them are indicated here. One thing that made him lonely was, of course, his knowledge of himself as to who he was. He was conscious of this division. We've already seen it. Uh, when he said to them, uh, for instance, my time is not yet come, but your time. You see, he's in a category on his own. Oh, I'm just trying to give you this evening and to hold before you this picture of the earthly life and course of the Son of God who came into this world to save us. Had you ever realized the loneliness in which he was involved? It's a terrible thing to be lonely, isn't it? It's a terrible thing to feel that you're isolated, that you're apart. Well, our Lord, you know, felt that, and he did partly because he had this consciousness of who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah. He was aware of it. He was a man amongst men, and yet he always knew that there was something different. He was different, because he was not merely a man, he was also God. There was human nature in him. Yes, but there was divine nature. Two natures in one person. And ever always, though he mixed with men and women so freely, 
this knowledge which he had of his relationship to God and his uniqueness kept him apart, the lonely Jesus. But not only that, there was something else that aggravated that, and that was, of course, his realization of the fact that he was being misunderstood. And that is something, I say, which really does aggravate this condition, this feeling of loneliness. How in spite of all he did and all he said and all he was, he knew that he was being misunderstood. Is there anything more grievous for any soul to bear than that? That while you're doing everything you can to help people and to aid them, you know that they're misunderstanding you. Is there anything, I say, that gives you such a sense of utter isolation that you are completely alone? And here he was. The Jews didn't understand him. The very people who'd been preaching and saying that the Messiah was going to come, the people who were well-versed in the Scriptures, telling everybody to wait for the Messiah. He's come, and they don't understand him. His own brothers. Why, his own disciples so frequently didn't misunderstand him. Read these Gospels for yourselves. See the foolish questions even the disciples asked him. Notice the way in which they didn't understand what he was doing and what he didn't do. He seemed to be doing to them the most foolhardy things and then he wasn't doing things they thought he ought to do. Here he is, misunderstood. And the misunderstanding makes him, I say, aware of his isolation and of his loneliness. And then, of course, that led to this. He was unable, obviously, for these reasons, to talk to them and consult with them and share his problems and his burdens with them, as he would like to have done, as any human being likes to do. Is there anything that we do so readily when we've got some particularly great problem to face? When we're in some critical position, is there anything that gives us such relief and release as to be able to go to somebody whom we know will understand and be able to be sympathetic and we state our case, we can discuss it together. But here is the Son of God carrying the burden of the sins of the world. And he can't share it with anybody. They don't understand him. Do you remember that notable instance of that? which took place after the great incident at Caesarea Philippi. Our Lord had put the question, Whom do men say that I am? And they'd given their various answers. Then he said, Who do you say I am? Peter stepped forward and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well done, said our Lord. Blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah. Wonderful. He seems to have an understanding. And it looks as if just there for a moment, our Lord in his human nature began to feel, ah, they're seeing it at last. I can trust them. I can tell them about my plans. He began to tell them about his forthcoming death. And immediately they began to show that they didn't understand. Peter again speaks and says, Far be this from thee, Lord. This shall not happen unto thee. Once again he's utterly alone and isolated. Has to rebuke Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. He can't tell them about his death. Every time he tried to do it, they stumbled at it. They couldn't accept it. They couldn't receive it. 
They didn't follow him when he talks about his death nor about his resurrection. The biggest things of all he can't share with. And thus I say he lived this lonely, isolated life. Well, here, of course, in our text this evening, we've got him depicted as being lonely even in a physical sense. His brothers went up to Jerusalem. He is left alone still in Galilee. Oh, that was his fate in this world. Listen to what we find at the end of this chapter and at the beginning of the next chapter. How expressive it is. Here's the last verse in this seventh chapter of John's Gospel. Every man went unto his own house. First verse of chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Every man went to his own house. They all had their houses. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. They went back to their families, to their wives, to their friends, to their children. He is alone, and he goes up into the Mount of Olives. Do you remember how he told the men who came to him one afternoon rather excitedly and said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest? Wait a minute, my friend, he said. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not whereon to lay his head. Even in a physical sense, in a material sense as it were, he is alone, he is isolated. He had no place which he could call his own. If ever there was a stranger, a lonely person in this world who had to live an isolated life, it was the Son of God. But come, let us think of other examples of this later on in his life. Here he is now, facing the very end of his life. This awful problem of bearing the sins of the world and the punishment thereof. And the realization that that will mean his separation from his heavenly father. He's in an agony. He's passing through the most acute crisis of the whole of his life and experience. He's facing the greatest problem that even he ever faced. And he clearly felt it. So he chose out of his twelve disciples three, Peter and James and John. He said, come with me for a while. And he took them into the garden of Gethsemane. And he said, now would you three go on praying here while I go over there and pray to my father. Watch with me, pray with me. But you remember what happened. They failed him. They became heavy with sleep. He comes back to them and finds them sleeping. And he says, ah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They protested so much, they claimed so much, professed so much. And yet in the hour of his greatest agony... He is allowed to pray alone and to sweat great drops of blood. And they can't wash with him even for a moment. He does it alone. But there was worse to come. As he is faced with his arrest and his death, they all forsook him and fled. 
His innermost circle, his most devoted followers. He had prophesied to them that they would do that. You'll find it at the end of the 16th chapter of this gospel according to St. John, where he tells them something like this. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And his prophecy was fulfilled. He trod the winepress alone. Well, here it is, I say. There's a little cameo here. We see here in Galilee, he's left alone. This separation from family, from brethren. This loneliness of the Son of God while he was in this world. But let me hurry to a second matter. His wisdom. Do you notice his wisdom? I read in the first verse after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Because he knew that. He didn't go up with his brethren. Now let's be clear about this going up. People seem to be stumbled over this. They say, we don't follow this because there we are told that he didn't go up with them. Later on, as you read in verse 8, he tells them to go up without him, and they did go up without him. But then we are told that later he went up. When his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast. Not openly, but as it were in secret. And the explanation is this. It was the custom. For the Jews, when they went up to the various religious festivals in Jerusalem, to go up together in great companies. Take, for instance, what we are told in Luke's Gospel, in the second chapter, about that incident uh, with our Lord when he was a little boy, aged 12 years of age. Don't you remember uh, how Mary and Joseph came to look for him as they were returning and couldn't find him? Well, you say, how was that possible? Well, the answer is this. They used to go up in great companies together. They would form a great procession. People coming from the same area. They'd have their caravans together and they'd go up together. Others would meet them at certain junctions and there'd be a tremendous procession. The people who were coming up from Galilee, they came from these different parts in these huge processions. So what we are being told here is this, that our Lord decided not to go up in the procession, not to go up with the crowd that was going up as usual from Galilee. And why not? Well, here I say we see his wisdom. Our Lord would never rushed into trouble unnecessarily. He knew that if he'd gone up with that crowd, that the Jews, the authorities of the Jews would be waiting for him. Ah, they say, here's the contingent coming from Galilee. He'll be amongst them. So he didn't go with the contingent. He didn't go with the crowd. He didn't rush into trouble unnecessarily. And again, of course, he makes this still more plain that by when he does go up, he went up secretly. Not openly, but secretly, as it were, in private. Here we see, I say, this amazing wisdom of the Son of God in this world of time. And we see it also, of course, in his refusal to accept the wrong advice that was proffered to him by his brethren on this occasion. How on another occasion you'll find that he didn't pay any attention to the advice that the disciples gave him. Constantly people were telling him what to do, but he doesn't listen to them. Oh, the wisdom displayed by the Son of God in his earthly life and cause. 
And then let me hurry to something which is still more wonderful and glorious, and that is his humility. Have you ever looked at this person, my friend? Have you ever considered his humility? The meek and the lowly Jesus. Look at it. He doesn't rush up with the crowd, with this contingent from Galilee, I say. Well, what does it tell me? Well, it tells me that he's not anxious to be notorious. He's not anxious to have mere popularity. You see, his brothers couldn't understand it. No man, they said, that doeth miracles as you do, doeth them secretly, does them openly. Why don't you go up and declare yourself? And obviously, if he was thinking in terms of notoriety, public applause, popularity, he would have gone up with the crowd. And they, the advanced party would have said, he's coming later on, be ready for him, and would have organized a great reception. He would have encouraged us, but he doesn't. Our Lord never sought that carnal kind of popularity or of notoriety. Haven't you noticed, as you read your Gospels, that he seems to do the exact opposite? He's performed many miracles in a town, and the people are beginning to gather. He disappears. He goes away. We've read already in chapter 6 of this Gospel that after he'd worked the miracle of feeding the 5,000, he saw that they would come and take him by king, to take him by force to make him a king. What does he do? He pushes them into the boats. He went up into a mountain. Himself alone. The humility of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And then notice his humility in his obeying of the law. He did eventually go up to this Feast of Tabernacles, you notice. He didn't go to the crowd, he went secretly on his own. Yes, but why did he go at all? Why should he have gone up to Jerusalem at all? And the answer is to be found in the Old Testament. The law of God dictated that all people should go up to these certain feasts, among which was the Feast of Tabernacles. And though he is the everlasting Son of God, the eternal Word, the one through whom all things that are were created, he was made under the law, and he submitted to the law. He gave obedience to Joseph and Mary. He here gives obedience to the law as he submitted to baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. He observes the feasts. You read in another place in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 4, that when he was at home in his hometown of Nazareth, he went as was his custom on the Sabbath day into the synagogue. He obeyed the law. Though he was above the law, he humbled himself. He took upon him the form of a servant. Indeed, this is just indicative, isn't it? of his complete and entire submission to his Father's will. Oh, that we might have an insight into this, that we might see the Son voluntarily submitting himself and humbling himself to his Father. He says, I have not come to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. The words that I speak, I speak not of myself. The works that I do, my Father doeth the works. And there again in the garden, this is his prayer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The humility of the Son of God. Look at another thing that stands out here in these few verses concerning him. His quiet confidence in his mission. So there was an Old Testament prophecy about him to this respect. He that believeth shall not make haste. 
There was never any excitement in the Son of God. There's never any sense of hurry. Why not? Well, he knows the plan, and he's working according to the plan. He's no, in no state of excitement here, wondering whether he should go or not. No, he knows exactly. His time has not yet fully come. It will come. Later on, you see, you'll read of him going up deliberately to Jerusalem, and this time going with the procession, going with the crowd, and the people throwing down their coats on the road, cutting down palm trees, riding on the fold of an ass like a king, and everybody roused, and the whole city of Jerusalem turning out and saying, Who is this? He did that deliberately. Yes, you see, but he didn't do it here. He knew that that was to come later. There's no excitement. There's no hurry in his life. There was a quiet confidence and calmness. He knew that all things that were in the plan of God were to be fulfilled and would be fulfilled in God's time. Therefore, he waits quietly and assured until the appointed hour. And then let me hurry to emphasize his knowledge of men. We've already been told at the end of the second chapter in this gospel that he knew what was in men and needed not that any should tell him what was in men because he knew it all. And here you see it comes out here so perfectly, so obviously. It was because he knew how men and women were going to react to him that he stayed up in Galilee and didn't go with the crowd. He could read men's thoughts. He knew their hearts. He knew of the antagonism in the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law. He knew that they were waiting to kill him. He knew that Herod would conspire with them and even Pontius Pilate, that all would be united again. He knew all about it. He knew that some were waiting to kill him. He knew that others were anxious to make him a king, misunderstanding his meaning and his purpose and his objective, and that they would visibly and forcibly take him and make a king of him. He knew it all, so he stays there as he'd gone up under that mountain himself alone. He stays in the north in Galilee and drives off his brethren, urging them to go up at once into, into the feast at Jerusalem. Oh, well, there is the picture. There we've been looking at this blessed person. Do you see him? Lonely, isolated, misunderstood, mocked at and jeered. And yet here he is in this world. Why has he ever come? What's he doing in this world? Why does he subject himself to the contradiction of sinners in this way and in this manner? Why does he suffer such indignities? Why does he allow men to insult him and give their advice and tell him what to do and criticize him? Why, I say, is he putting up with it all? Why does he walk thus meek and lowly and humble and alone? Why does he do it all? There's only one answer to the question. It is this amazing love of his that shines through it all. Though he knew what men would do with him, he came amongst them. Though he knew full well when he left the courts of heaven and was born as a babe that it was going to end on a cross with suffering and agony. 
and all the ignominy and the indignity that was attached to it, it was though he knew it all, because he knew all things, he came. And he went through with it all. And he did it, I say, because his name is love. Because he's everlasting and eternal love. Because of his compassion. He looked upon the world as he did so often when he was in it. And he saw men and women as sheep without a shepherd. He saw men and women going to perdition and to hell and to shame and to torment. He saw them the helpless victims of the world and the flesh and the devil. And though he knew how they would react to him, he came. And he went through all that I've been trying to indicate to you. There's the picture that we have of him in verses 8, 9, and 10. Well, now then, let's hurriedly glance at the reaction of men and women to this kind of thing. Isn't it strange? Isn't it extraordinary? Here he is. He's gone up to Jerusalem. And this is what I read. The Jews, that's to say the Jewish authorities, they sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much muttering among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Isn't there something almost incredible about this? That the person I've been holding before you should have been treated in this way? With his humility, with his lowliness, with his loneliness, with his love, with his compassion, with his kindness, with his consideration. And this is how they treat him. This is the reception he received. We are no longer looking at his brothers. We are looking at the crowd up there in Jerusalem. And you notice that this was the reception he got from all sorts of people. Not only from some, but from all types. The Jews, the authorities, the experts on religion and on the law, and the common people. And it has always been the same. It isn't merely people who belong to one group of society who reject the Son of God. You find them in all groups. Did you notice the reading at the beginning? The princes of this world didn't know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The princes, not merely the princes in a kind of regal sense, but the intellectual princes. We are told in the first chapter of that first epistle to the Corinthians that according to the Greeks, he and all he stood for was utter folly. And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, barbarians, wise, foolish, religious, irreligious, they all give him the same treatment. Look at it as it's depicted here. Listen to these Jews. They are in the feast and they say he must be here because he never misses. He always keeps the law and he comes to all the festivals. I read in verse 11, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? But you know, this is a very poor translation. We've got here in this authorized verse, here is the true translation. Where is that man? That's what they really said. Where is that man? Some would even translate it like this. Where is that fellow? Because that is how they refer to him. That fellow. And here they are saying it. 
Where is that fellow? Here's the reaction of the Jewish authorities to him. One of contempt. One of hatred. They feel he's a nuisance and an annoyance. They feel he's a blasphemer. They feel he's setting himself up as somebody and he has no right to do it. And their desire is to take him and to condemn him and to kill him and to get him out of the way. They hated him with a perfect hatred and they dismissed him as that fellow, that man. Where is he? That's the reaction of the Jews. Look at the common people. Muttering. And there was much muttering or murmuring among the people concerning him. What does this mean? Well, this is a common reaction, isn't it? Arguing and disputation. Talking about him. What do you think of him? What do you make of him? How do you figure him out? What do you think of this fellow? What is this person? This man about whom there's so much talk. And there they are, they begin to argue. You see, they're just like the contemporary people. There are many people who spend the whole of their time in arguing about Jesus Christ. There are still people who enjoy a religious argument. It's rather a clever thing to do, isn't it? You take up certain aspects of his work, his person. Did he work miracles or didn't he? What's his death mean? Arguing about him, muttering, talking. What do you think of him? And here they are. And oh, the utter uselessness of it all. Some said, he's a good man. What do they mean by that, you think? Well, they said, he's doing a lot of good. They said, here are we under this Roman tyranny and bondage. He doesn't seem to have very much respect for these authorities. Isn't this the man, perhaps, who is quietly and in his own way forming a, a party for rebellion? Isn't this the man, perhaps, who is going to set himself up as king eventually? Ah, yes, he's a good man, they said. There's a lot in what he says. Ah, there are aspects of what this man says, they say, which is very good. They regarded him as a reformer. They regarded him as a political personage. Some of them even regarded him almost as a military personage. They said, this man's going to do us great good. Let's follow him. They picked out aspects of his teaching. They said, this is just it. He's a good man. I say he's a good man. And they were ready to follow him in that respect. But the others said, no, he does, he's not a good man. He's deceiving the people. Jesus of Nazareth, who is he? He is the one who brought in the dope of the people. He's the one who talks about pie in the sky. He's the one who's drugged the masses throughout the centuries. This Jesus with his negations and his talking about heaven and who didn't meet and face the facts of ordinary living in this world. He who there talks about love and doesn't face the facts. No, they say, he's deceiving the people. Christianity has been the greatest hindrance to the forward march and progress of the human race. You see, they were all there nearly 2,000 years ago. Those who feel that there's indeed quite a, a number of good things in Christianity. That it just has the social political emphasis that we need. He's a good man. But then the others are equally certain, equally vociferous. That he's simply deluding the people, leading them astray, standing be between them and their real heritage and their true greatness. And so they argue and are utterly opposed to one another. But this is the thing for us, my friends. They're both equally and utterly and hopelessly wrong. He is not just a good man. 
He's not just a political reformer. He's not a political agitator. He's not simply here to lift up the masses of the people. No, no. He's not a good man. They're as wrong as those who say that he deceives the people. They're both wrong. And all whose response to him is merely one of argument and disputation, of sitting upon him as it were in judgment, and looking on at him coolly, and saying, you know, on the whole, I, I think he thought, he's, he thought a lot of good. There were many good things in what he'd got to say. And indeed, I think Christianity's done a lot of good, you know. And we want to apply a little bit more of it. So let's see now that it's done in various ways. And the others who say the opposite, I'm here just to say this, that this muttering, this murmuring, this argument, this disputation, shows that they're all, all together absolutely and entirely wrong. Who is he? Is he one for me to measure and to assess? No, no. There's only one appropriate attitude to him. It is to fall at his feet. It is to worship him. It is to give yourself to him. It is to see in him the savior of your soul. It is to see in him the son of God who came from heaven on earth to bear your sins, to take your burden, to carry out the plan of God, and to go through with it, though you're left alone and utterly isolated, and are sweating drops of blood in the garden, and forsaken of all, and dying alone there upon a cross. They didn't understand him. Their best opinions of him are useless and worthless. Their interest in him betrays their blindness to him. What's the cause of this, my friends? How comes it to pass that anybody can react to and treat this blessed person as these people depicted in this seventh chapter of John's Gospel did? What is it, I ask, that men and women can still react to him in the same way, the Son of God left the everlasting and eternal glory, and he came down into this world. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became a man. He took on to him human nature. He lived in this world for 33 years in the way I've been trying to describe to you. Humble, lowly, lonely, misunderstood, criticized, argued with, stoned, maligned, reviled, spat upon, crucified upon a cross. And yet there are people who go on living as if he'd never come at all. If you could blot him out of history, wouldn't make the slightest difference to them. And there are others who but argue about him and about Christianity and how we need this or that, which is very good in the Sermon on the Mount and so on, and pick it out, social gospel, political slogans and so on, and praise him. And others hate him and blaspheme him and curse him. Wished that he'd never been in this world and had never taught at all. Those are still the reactions, are they not? Of men and women to him. I want to ask you a question, my friend. 
What's your reaction to him? You react of necessity. You can't fail to react. Once you've heard about him, once you've heard the story, once you've looked at the picture, you're bound to react to him. How are you reacting to him? You're just completely indifferent? You just say that he's a good man? Or do you hate him? With many a, many a modern communist and others. Which is your position? You're in one or the other. Or you're just arguing, murmuring, muttering about him, disputing. What is it? But oh, let me ask another question. What can account for such a reaction? Doesn't it amaze you? I'm holding it before you. I'm giving you an objective picture. Forget yourself for a moment. Now, aren't you amazed at these people? He never did anybody any harm. He never said an unkind word. All his deeds were deeds of compassion. There was nothing that was so striking about him as his love and his sympathy and his lowliness. He'd mix with the lowest. There were people whom the Pharisees and others wouldn't touch. They drew up their skirts when they got near them. He sat and ate with them. He was a man who ate with publicans and sinners. Called the friend of publicans, and yet they reacted like this. I ask you, how do you explain it? What is the explanation? My dear friends, there's only one answer. The answer given in the Bible itself. There is only one explanation of this. It is spiritual blindness. It is blindness. It is perversion. This is what sin has done to man. Man in sin reacts like that to this blessed person. The only begotten Son of God who comes down into this world and suffers so much and goes so low. That's how they react and still do. What is it? I say this is nothing but spiritual blindness, perversion, evil in the heart. Inability to respond to God and the holy and the true and the lovely and the loving. It is the only explanation. What can be done, you say, with such people? There is only one answer. It is this. He must be born again. Anybody who reacts like this to him should see himself in such a desperate plight as to cry out to God. It is God alone who can deliver such people. He's had to do it to every one of us who's a Christian. No man is a Christian by nature. No man is a Christian by inclination. We become Christians. And we become Christians as the result of the operation of the Holy Spirit of God upon us. Nothing else can deal with us. Here was the Son of God himself in person, standing before people. They were looking into his face. They were looking into his eyes. They heard his gracious words. They saw his miracles. And yet they hated him. Well, if that happened to him when he was here himself, what chance have I as a mere preacher, a mere debater, a mere arguer, a mere speaker, as I try to represent him to you and hold him before you? How hopeless it is. It is, you know, but for one thing. And that one thing is the Holy Spirit of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he. Why? Well, because they are spiritually discerned. The princes of this world, says the apostle, didn't know him, for had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Well, but we are Christians. How do we believe in him? God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. My friend, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you feel that you're utterly, absolutely dependent upon him? Do you know him as the Son of God and the Savior of your soul? Do you thank him this evening for having left the courts of heaven and having come on earth and having lived like that and having died on the cross for you? Have you said, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all? And have you given them? If you haven't, It's because you are blinded by sin. Had you realized that? And had you realized that if you go to your grave like that, you will live eternally outside the love of God and the knowledge of God in misery and wretchedness? Do you see what sin has done to the human race? Do you see this awful blindness with which it has afflicted us? If you have, cry out unto God by his Spirit to give you life, to give you knowledge, to give you understanding, to open your blind eyes. Ask him to have mercy upon you, to give you life anew, that you may believe in his Son and have life eternal and rejoice in him and live to his praise and his glory the remainder of your life in this passing world and then Spend your eternity in his glorious presence. No, no, it's not enough to think he's a good man. You must see in him the Son of God, the Savior of your soul, the one who came from heaven deliberately to take your sins upon himself and to bear their punishment alone on the cruel cross on Calvary's hill. Do you love him because he endured such loneliness for you? Because he made himself so low that you might be raised into heaven and to see the face of Do you see him? Do you recognize him? Does your heart go out to him? Have you given your life to him? I plead with you. See clearly that if you don't, it's because of this awful spiritual blindness and inability. Cry out to God for mercy and for the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. For I promise you, I assure you, in the name of Christ himself, that if you do so, God will hear you. Your eyes will be opened. You will see him as he is. You will give yourself to him. You will begin to love him and to desire him above the whole world.